Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're following the Gospel of St. Mark, and today we're going to take Mark 9, um, spotty verses from 38 to, uh, to 48. Um, and basically, what, what rises to the surface in this Gospel is the relationship to Jesus of doing good, the consequences of causing others to sin, and the whole question of what does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord, and how is that evaluated in the sight of the Messiah's mission. And he addresses that today because John comes to Jesus, and he's in this gospel, and he's, he's, he's distressed because he said, we saw a man who is not one of us who was casting out demons in your name. And because he was not one of us, we tried to stop him. But Jesus said, you must not stop him, for no one who works a miracle in my name is likely to speak evil of me, and anyone who is not against us is for us. This seems simple enough in many ways, and it's translated, of course, into the modern whole idea of, of doing good. Um, and yet, at the same time, there's a, there's a catch in this, and a very important catch in this. Because basically what's happening is the man is doing what he's doing in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, if you do it in my name, then if you're not against me, you're with me. This is, this is uh, pretty significant, actually. And it's significant because the name in the first century and in the story of the Hebrews is very different than what we think of the name. It's why, for instance, so many people in different kinds of colloquial language think that there's no harm whatsoever in using um, the name of Jesus in exclamatory sentences or in descriptive sentences or in some way, shape, or form as, as just kind of a word of frustration, all that kind of thing. But that's because for us, a name doesn't mean very much. And I think, you know, that, uh, that most societies, many other societies, at least earlier societies, there was always a great significance to naming someone. There was always a great significance to a name. Uh, for instance, the Native Americans, oftentimes the names were related to either the parents' hopes for the children, the, parent, the, the child's heritage within his family, and, and the different um, strata of the, in, of the Native American society, of the Indian society of which they were a part. Um, we find the same thing carefully done throughout the Old Testament. I think it's really interesting in the book of the prophecies of, of, of Osi, of Hosea, that when God tells him, you know, to be assigned to Israel by, by espousing himself to a prostitute, um, as God is intended, therefore, for Israel to see that they have prostituted themselves in their relationship with him. And then each child that comes, that comes forward from this marriage of, uh, of Hosea and of, um, 
Gomer, who was the prostitute, they all have a name, and the name is always supposed to be descriptive, and it's always supposed to be a message to the people of Israel. The names are not, therefore, without meaning. Um, when, in fact, it comes to the naming of John the Baptist, everyone is sure that because of the circumstances of his conception and his birth and all of this, that he will be named Zechariah after his, after his father. And yet his name is t- called to be John, which is a, des- a name which designates who he is to become and what he is to do, rather than his identity with his family. Um, when the angel described, um, comes to, uh, to Mary and says, you will bear a son and you shall name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. And uh, Yeshua means Yahweh is with us. So it's the same name. Um, and, uh, and it means that the presence of God. So names were always very, very significant, very significant in the... Uh, in, in the scriptures and in Hebrew society, as they are, as I said, in many, many um, early societies, many more basic societies where names were more descriptive. We even find, for instance, that in last names, that's how last names came to be developed within the Western world, is basically either through their relationship with their family or through their vocation, their task in life as millers and, and smiths and uh, and all those kinds of names which become so so popular and so important to us and in the German and the English world at least. And certainly that was also true in, in the other European development of last names. Um, the O's and the Irish and the Max and the Scots and the Sons and the in the Scandinavian, all of them denote parental relationship, familial relationships. Um, and so what happens then is when in this gospel, when it says, Master, we saw a man who was not one of us cast out devils in your name, that means more than just saying, I cast you out in the name of Jesus the Christ, or I cast you out in the name of Jesus. It indicates a deeper relationship, a deeper bond. As I said in, in the beginning of the discussion, um, the, our sense of a name is so disconnected from reality that sometimes people can use the name of God in, in kind of a casual and exclamatory sort of way. But the Hebrews could not even speak the name of their God because it was so sacred and so profound. And if you could speak the name, then you, in some way, shape, or form, were claiming power over that name. And by claiming power over that name, authority over that name, you were blaspheming. And this is something, look at the radical difference between using the name of Jesus as an exclamation or and not even being able to speak the name in the Old Testament world, in the Hebrew world. So when, in fact, this man is saying that he is casting out devils in the name of Jesus, he's not saying that I have the power to cast out demons. He is saying that Jesus has the power to cast out demons. And so by applying the name of the Messiah to the diabolical presence, it effectively then 
presents the person of Jesus to the devil, and the devil flees. That's what the inner dynamic of this whole story is, and with a long explanation about the use of names. But nevertheless, what happens then is this is a much more serious thing than just tossing around the name of the Lord. And so um, Jesus says to him, you must not stop him. For anyone who works a miracle in my name, and anyone therefore who invokes me and my power to do something that is the same way that all miracles are, revelatory of the ultimate goodness of creation, then you should not stop them because if in fact they are using my name to cure evils, in other words, to undo either the demonic presence or to undo the consequences of sin in the world, then, so they certainly, um, certainly would not in any way speak evil of me. Because if they did, then they would not be in any way, shape, or form able to use the power of Jesus over the presence of evil in the midst of the world. So anyone then who is not against us is for us. Anyone who invokes my name, in other words, my person, my presence, my power, who I really am against the powers of evil, is not going to be against us. If they were to use his name as a curse, that would be something quite different very different. If they were to use his name just simply because, you know, and say, oh, well, whether it's Jesus or or whatever other local demigods there might have been, um, then, then nothing would have happened. The very fact that the demon was cast out means that the person was invoking the person of the Christ and making his power, therefore, presence to, present to the presence of evil itself. So this is is a little bit more intense and a little bit more complicated than maybe we would have a tendency to think. And it all stems from an understanding and a use of the name. So often in the modern society, we pick names because they sound nice or they are appealing to us at the present time or we have kind of heard a song we like with a name in it or something. And they really fundamentally are meaningless. This is a modern introduction. This is a modern development within the naming of the human person. And because it is, it comes, you know, even from the book of Genesis, when God gave Adam the the power to name the animals and then said that he had dominion over them. What happens is by giving them their name, he also assumes over them responsibility. He assumes over them oversight and stewardship and so forth as a parent by giving Giving a name to a child claims the person of that child as their someone who is in their care, someone who is in some way, shape, or form able to be looked after, taken care of within their power for good. So that all of this, even from, from the naming of the animals in the book of Genesis to the naming of children in most early societies, certainly in Hebrew society, and here in the gospel, using the name to, as a source of power over evil. That's what this is all about. And that's why Jesus is kind of nonplussed when John is concerned about that. And John legitimately is concerned because he doesn't know 
if the use of that name is involved in a personal relationship with the Messiah himself, and Jesus says it can be no other way if he uses my name, then obviously he in some way, shape, or form has a relationship with me, of faith at least, of deep faith at least. And then he says, but if anyone gives a cup of water uh, to, to someone just because they belong to Christ, I tell you solemnly, he will most certainly not lose his reward. And this is something, too, that Paul says in Paul's letters and something that we have to deal with as well. This is giving in the name of the Christ, giving in the name of the Messiah. It is intended, therefore, just not to be material assistance, but it is a communication of the person of the Christ, and when in fact, and this is, a, this is a problem and something that we grapple with in contemporary society all the time, the idea of altruism, of doing good, and so forth. Well, you know, we have all sorts of people who want to do good, but what are their motivations? Um, certainly with so much of the stuff in the United Nations in relationship to, uh, to uh, Southern Hemisphere charities and all of that kind of thing, so much of that is, in, in all honesty, um, a cultural imperialism. They accuse the Catholic Church of doing that in its, in its centuries of missionary activity, and I suppose it's somewhat within the nature of the human person to do so. But if the missionary went forward in the name of Jesus, then he was doing something to bring people into a relationship with the Christ in which they could overcome, therefore, the oppressions of their life. But when you do good without any reference to the Christ, is it truly good? And I think that we have to really, we can say objectively, for instance, uh, food to the hungry is good. Um, but what do we do with that power that we have over them by giving it to them? Look at what the United States Foreign as a State Department has done over the last 20 years in an attempt to impose bourgeois values on, on, um, on Southern Hemisphere countries making all sorts of conditions of abortion and gay marriage and all those kinds of stuff in order to receive what we give. In other words, we're not giving in the name of Jesus, we're giving in the name of ourselves and our depraved selves at that. And uh, and saying in some way, shape, or form, we will impose upon you our culture and whether you like it or not, and we're going to do so because we have the money to do so and the power to do so and the material wealth to do so. And then we can say, oh, look, they're feeding the poor. What else What are they doing to feeding the poor? Jesus said, don't worry about that which kills your body. Worry about that which kills your soul. They're trying to kill the soul of the people of the southern hemisphere and it's the same way it's the same way in this country and it's the same way all throughout the world when we see for instance the uh, who the, the irish singer bono and you know, he's he's an advocate for the poor and all that kind of stuff but he's also one of the great advocates for abortion in ireland so what is he an advocate of really it certainly is not the christ it certainly is not the Christ. He's not doing that in the name of the Christ. He's doing it because he has the power and the money and the celebrity to do so. And if he is an altruistic person, um, then he can select that which is good and he can choose to do that which is also evil. And, uh, and that is not what Jesus is talking about in the gospel. It's something, I, I don't know, we have all sorts of troublesome examples of that in the contemporary church, of honoring people who, uh, who, um, 
who really were were scurrilous kind of enemies of humanity. And yet, because they had an altruistic streak in them somehow or other, we hold them up as great examples. Jesus would not do that for anyone who gives, because someone belongs to the Christ, will not certainly lose his reward. And I think that Sometimes we can say, well, we, we get into this whole thing of, of Carl Rahner's anonymous Christian business. Well, you know, um, must Christianity be specified in charity? Must Jesus be specified in charity for it to be authentic charity? And I think we can argue in both directions, of course, but I think we can argue, yes, that Christianity must be a specific element of it. For it is in Christianity, if we are authentically Christians, that we surrender our own values to the values of the Christ. And surrendering our own values to the value of the Christ, we then, somehow or other, will implement Jesus' desire for these people. Certainly, he has, throughout the Gospels, shown himself to be a compassionate person. Certainly, he has shown himself, throughout the Gospel, to be, to be a friend of the needy and the afflicted. But he is more than that. He is the one who reveals the, the, the living God in the midst of their lives by his compassion and his goodness. He is the one who allows them to see what the God of creation desired for humanity before humanity managed to to distort and to obscure it. And so the compassion and the goodness that Jesus has in the healing and the raising from the dead and the healing of the blind and the lame and the and the deaf and 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 all of those kinds of things all of those things are rev- revelation all of those things are revelatory moments revelatory moments in the uh, in, in the life of the person who has encountered the Christ. And we recall oftentimes, even when he tells them to be silent, that they wander off, and in wandering off they tell what great things he has done for them. It is referenced back to the Christ, back to faith, back to salvation, back to eternal life. That anything that dead ends into the object of compassion and does not elicit a love response from them, at least toward the goodness of God, somehow or other, is... Uh, has usually a dark side to it. Um, again, you know, like the vast amounts of money that the that the United States can pump into poorer countries, and how and how callously, and and how um, incredibly they do so by pulling the strings of those people's lives, of their minds, of their culture, of their civilization, their heart, their bodies, all of those kinds of things, and somehow or other attempting to become puppet masters of the world. Um, and, and all of it in the name of altruism. That is not doing anything in the name of Jesus, and that is not doing anything in the name of the Christ, nor is that giving to someone because they believe. Paul emphasizes that. We are to take care of the members of the household of the faith first. And then, whatever else we can do, we do in the name of Jesus as missionary, as missionary work, as work not to preach to them necessarily, not in any way, shape, or form, to try and browbeat them into somehow submission to the propositions of uh, of the catechetical faith of the Roman Catholic Church. No, 
but to allow them to see the witness of those who they distinctly know believe in the Christ. This was the power of the religious habit. And this is something, too, you know, that we see, for instance, in many of the mission countries, the sister who was, uh, who was shot in the back down in Africa, um, and, and eventually, I think, at least made a servant of God, if not beatified, um, they, it, th- their witness was to Jesus. That's, what they, what, that's what, how they lived was. That's how they dressed was. That's what they did was. It was a public witness that this is the Christian presence. This is the presence of Christ in the midst of, of this very tumultuous and, and very difficult and, and long-suffering society. Um, it wasn't just, you know, um, here's, some, here's some food. Um, it was, here's some food not only for your bodies, but also through the witness to Christ, of, to your souls. And that is what is happening in this first few verses of this particular Gospel of St. Mark. The name of Jesus is the person, the presence, and the power of Jesus. And it is oriented toward and directed toward faith. Then Jesus goes on to say, but anyone who is an obstacle to bring down one of these little ones who have faith would be better thrown into the sea with a great millstone round their neck. Wow. What about the ones who go into the Catholic countries of the Southern Hemisphere and even into our own areas of our own country? And there they find believing poor who they do their very best to secularize and to introduce to some of the more foul and dangerous practices of modern civilization. Where are the ones who go in and say, you know, let us, let us limit your families and let us, let us help you to abort your children. And so hopefully with a few more shekels in your pocket, you may begin to approach the level of material existence that we have and so become like us, indifferent to faith, indifferent to Jesus Christ, and somehow or other then in your own way of being, um, leave behind this faith dimension of your life and be enticed and seduced by the material wealth of the West. Well, better they would be thrown into the sea with a millstone round their neck. That's a powerful statement, and it's a dramatic statement, and it begins a whole section in, in, in the gospel. It begins an entire section in the gospel of what we call Hebrew hyperbola, the whole idea of the millstone. Well, we know a millstone is, is, is a very heavy thing, um, and uh, we know that, um, but this millstone is, is a particularly heavy one. And uh, a particularly large and, and, and common, common reality that uh, everyone knows no one is coming back out, out, of the, out of the sea with one of those things around their neck. It is an absolute hyperbolic statement. You could sink somebody in the sea with less than a millstone. Then Jesus goes on to say, and, and of course, as we know, the concrete shoes and all of this from, from our own past, from the, our own story of, of crime in America. And then it says, if your hand should cause you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to go into life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell, into the fire that cannot be put out, and your foot cut it off, and your eye poke it out, 
and so forth. All of it to keep us from going into the pits of hell, to the fires of hell. He takes this, Mark takes this from the last chapter of Isaiah, and it refers to the, uh, the smoldering garbage dumps of the Hinnan Valley just outside of Jerusalem, um, sometimes called Gehenna. And here, basically, it is called hell because it is the consuming, the stench, the filthy fires that burn the trash and the rubbish and the refuse of, uh, of an entire urban population. And so he is saying, he's not saying to us, maim yourself so that you don't sin. He's using the Hebrew hyperbola, which is to overstate something for the sake, overstate something for the sake of, um, of making an impression. We've said before, their language they didn't have in any way, shape, or form. They didn't have um, the superlatives, good, better, best, anything like that. It was just an increase in magnitude of the, of the impact of the word or the statement or the image. And that called hyperbola, it somehow then was impressed upon the seriousness and the greatness and the vastness of all that was going on. So that it is then simply meaning to say to us, it is better to lose whatever we have in this world that is of value to us than it is to sin and go into the fires of Gehenna, of the Hinnan Valley, of hell. That somehow or other the consequences of sin are not worth what we invest in it. If we think about, for instance, the struggles that the modern church is going through, what if we would have believed what the gospel said? What if we would have taken to heart what the gospel said? What if over the last 50, 60 years, however long we're talking about at this stage of the game, what should happen if we would have heard anyone who is an obstacle to bring down one of these little ones who have the faith, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a great millstone round their neck. And then to take that out from beyond the whole abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and take it into also the, the, the secular imperialism into the um, less prosperous, less materialistically um, uh, affluent countries of the world and to take into these many of whom are people of faith and to do everything they can to destroy not only the faith in their hearts but the faith practiced in their lives as well. What, what a damning condemnation this is. What an incredibly dangerous thing people engage in when they become altruistic for the sake of the spirit of this world and do so at the expense of the name of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the faith of the people who are disciples of Jesus. How serious this is. And that's what the gospel wants us to, wants us to be aware of and wants to emphasize to us. This is not just, you know, oh well, you know, a little picadillo here, a little picadillo there, I'm, I'm fine. No, no, we're not fine. This is serious. This is the height of hyperbola. Cut off your hands and your feet and poke out your eyes. What? That's not trivial. That's not insignificant. A millstone round your neck into the sea, that's not insignificant. This is serious that the Lord is talking about. He has contrasted, therefore, faith in the beginning of the gospel with the lack thereof and the destruction thereof at the end of the gospel. And he goes from this calm and peaceful inclusivity 
into this very, very serious and, and, and very dark understanding of the nature of sin. And if we understand nothing else in our lives, it would be very important for us to understand the seriousness of sin and the power of faith. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who bad?